Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of Exodus chapter 20 as we continue on in our series entitled Set in Stone. We've been walking through the Ten Commandments one by one. Now we are in the second half of what, what is also known as the Decalogue, um, where we have looked at uh, one through seven, and now we are join, journeying into eight. And I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word for this very short uh, commandment. Pretty simple, and to this point, the Holy Spirit through Moses says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Let's pray. Father and our God, we come into your presence now asking you to peel back the layers of unbelief, the pollution of sin that has kept us from seeing who you are. Lord, so often we continue through life and don't realize how bad it really is. Like driving through the country on a summer night as the, the bugs continually go on our windshield and we don't realize how bad it was until it was clean. Lord, I pray that you help us show what your word says. Show us how we have broken this commandment. Convict our hearts, and not just convict our hearts, but bring us to our knees and repentance until we have no place else to go but for you, for rescue and redemption. Lord, be in our time today. May your spirit touch each and every heart. And Lord, may your words go forth through me that your name might receive honor and praise. So Lord, please let your spirit be preeminent right now in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever seen or read the book by Victor Hugo, probably more likely heard of the, the musical. There's even a movie about it. Um, I don't speak French, but I'm going to try it. Les Miserables. Something along that line. Most of you are like, less miserables. That is acceptable for today in this group. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to dismiss our children's uh, worship. So between pre-K and third grade, make your way on out. And as the kids are doing so, I, I've been thinking on, as I've been meditating on this command this past week, I, for some reason, God brought this book to mind. Now, it's a very long book. Most of you, or most of us, I would assume, have not read it. Uh, again, it's by Victor Hugo, the same man who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in this book, it's about, it, it has diff- several different characters that have these very intersecting storylines. And it starts off with this young man by the name of Jean Valjean. Now, Jean Valjean, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult time. It's set in France in the mid-1800s, and there's almost like a famine in the land. And his family is in need, specifically his sister and their children. So he, he couldn't uh, get any food or money for them because there were no jobs. So what he ended up doing, doing was stealing a loaf of bread. And he gets caught, and then he is put into prison for five years stealing a loaf of bread. Now, in the midst of this, he tries to escape, and he gets captured, and he gets more time tacked onto a sentence, and then he tries to escape again, and he gets more time tacked onto a sentence. He ends up serving 19 years. Now, think about that. 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, he gets out, and in France, during the mid-1800s, after you, um, you got out of prison, you had to carry this yellow identification card and it showed everybody who you were. And as soon as people saw this identification card, no one would give him a job. They wouldn't even let him find a place to stay. He couldn't stay in an inn. He couldn't do anything, so he had to sleep on the street. 
And he's getting more and more angry at what life has thrown at him and the situation in which he finds himself, and he doesn't know what to do. Well, he ends up encountering this bishop. And this bishop is, is at the time, a very. Uh, you see him, and Hugo does a very good job at bringing out the, the com- Christ-like compassion this man has. And this man brings in uh, Jean Valjean into his home. I mean, and his home is very small. He actually used to live in an Episcopal palace, but he gave it up so people could use it as a hospital. I mean, he, he only kept 10% of his income. Now think about that. Most people keep 90 and give 10, and barely that, if that. But he's living off 10 and giving away 90 to help the poor. He's even um, working with those that have been like accused and, and, and uh, been sentenced to death. And he accompanies them on the way to the gallows and offering Christ-like counsel to him. I mean, this man is just uh, the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. And he takes, he takes Jean Valjean in and gives him a bed and a place to stay and feeds him. And, he, and Jean Valjean is even trying to sleep in this bed and he can't. For 20 years he's been sleeping on slats. And he can't sleep on this bed, and he's angry. So he ends up waking up in the middle of the night. He decides that he sees that this this bishop has all of this pure silverware. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to steal this. I'm a thief anyway, and I'm going to go sell it. So he steals it. He leaves that night. And this guy, if you haven't figured it out, is probably the most unluckiest criminal in history. I mean, think about it. He gets arrested for five years for a loaf of bread, tries to escape twice, gets that tacked onto a sentence, and serves 19 years. He gets caught again. So the gendarmes, the police, bring him back to the bishop. And they say, here, he stole this from you. And the bishop does something very interesting. He goes, no, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. And Jean Valjean is like, what? He goes, I gave it to him. And not only that, I told you to take the candlesticks too. They're worth a lot more. And the police are dumbfounded, like, what's going on? I mean, Jean Valjean's like, what? (laughs) And he gives him these candlesticks and and the gendarmes leave, and then Jean Valjean's just standing there, stunned. And the bishop says to him, use this to become a better man. I'm holding you to this. So Jean Valjean leaves with this, all this stuff that he now had been given. He doesn't know what to do with it. He, and he's kind of stunned. He's walking through the streets, and he encounters a little a young boy who's a chimney sweep. And out of habit, he, he, he sees the kid has money, and he steals it from him. And he's sitting there looking at the money in his hand. It's not much. And the boy runs off. And he's sitting there just stunned, thinking about what he's doing. When he decides, you know what? That bishop's right. I need, to come, I need to come back to God. So he ends up repenting right then and there. And he tries to give the money back to the boy. He even tries to chase him down the street. But he sees that the boy already made his way to the police station. And he told the police. And the police, by this time, had already figured out who Jean Valjean was. And now, if Jean Valjean is captured, he goes to prison for life. So it's this, this very interesting plot is happening, and Jean Valjean ends up leaving, and then six, year, six years later, he appears in this town far away, and he's changed his name to Monsieur Madeleine. And he ends up working his way up, becomes a factory owner, and even the mayor of the town. Now, Hugo pauses from that story and, then, and holds him, and then he introduces this young girl named Fantine. Now, Fantine is this lower-class French girl. She's beautiful. But she falls in love with this upper-class young man. And this relationship develops not only between him and her, but between a few of her friends and a few of his friends. And, but these guys, though, are just playing the field. Have no interest really in her. And she thinks that he loves her and that he's going to spend the rest of his life with her. I mean, she can't even read. And here's the, he's a college guy, you know, young man. And ends up, he ends up sleeping with her. 
And she's like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with him. And then what's he do? He and his buddies write a letter, basically a note that says, thanks for the good times, later. And he leaves them. I mean, all of those guys leave him. Unbeknownst to, to him, she was pregnant with a child. Now, this is mid-1800s France. She gives birth to a girl named Cosette. But she has no support system. She's forced to raise this baby by herself to make an income to generate it for this young girl. She can't find a job as soon as they find out she's an unwed mother. So what she does is she leaves that town to another town, and she, she hears about a factory a little far away. But she says, I can't work in the factory and take care of my child. So she comes upon this family called the Chenindyes, and she sees that they have two little girls, and she says, I'll make a deal with you. Please, you take my daughter with your daughters and, and raise her then I will pay you. And they say, okay, you need to make sure you have the payments. And she says, I will. I'll send it to you. So she goes off, gets a job at a factory where Jean Valjean happens to be the mayor and he owns the factory. And then she's, uh, Fantine works and works, but there's a, a supervisor that has it out for her. You ever had that? supervisor that has it out for her and she's getting these letters and she has a, like a, a professional letter writer and reader because she can't read that communicates to her. And she, it ends up being found out that she's an unwed mother, and she never told Jean Valjean about it. So the supervisor ends up firing her. Now she goes home, and she's forced to pay this money to this family to take care of her daughter. But now she's not making enough money. And, and this, the family, she has no idea, but the family is totally abusing her daughter. They're forcing her to be a slave basically in the home, treating her like dirt and garbage. And at the same time, they're writing letters to Fantine saying, oh, by the way, she needs, she needs more clothing. You need to send more money. Or she's sick. You need to send more money. So she can't get a job. And what's the first thing that she does? She says, well, my daughter needs clothing. She sells her hair to take care of her daughter. And then they write another one that says she's sick. So she does what any mother would do in horrible situations. She ends up selling her two front teeth to take care of her daughter's need. And then she doesn't know what else to do. She, they're still demanding more money, so she turns into the, one of the most horrible forms of anything, becomes a prostitute. And it's an awful situation. She ends up getting arrested for someone trying to abuse her, and, and, and Jean Valjean sees this, and he's never actually had an interaction with her. He sees it. He inquires the situation. He hears about it, and then he seeks to help her out. But see, by this time, she's sick. She's dying of tuberculosis. He makes a promise to take care of her daughter, and she ends up dying. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that, but I don't want to give it all away. But in the story, there's a lot that's there that actually applies to our commandment today. You see that it starts off because of a man, he did what? He stole. Now, it's interesting, though. He steals in order to, to help his family. He still has to pay that back, though. And not only that, there's more to stealing. It's not just taking an object. You know that? It's so much more than that. We're going to get into the definition of it because what we see within this story are several, several different illustrations or types of stealing. See, what he did, or what Hugo captures, is not just the theft of bread, but there's also the theft of virtue. That young girl had something taken from her that was her virtue. Not only that, but you have this family that is extorting her to get money. That is a form of stealing. 
So you see these different threads intersecting one another. That Stealing is not just someone stealing your iPod. It's much, much bigger than that. and has many different layers and many different forms. And that's what I want us to look at today. Now, in order for us to really grasp what this commandment means, we need to define what the horrible crime of stealing looks like. Define the the deplorable crime of stealing. Now, I have a few different definitions before we get to the real one. The first one that I found was this. Stealing, one pastor, his name is Bob Diffenbaugh, says this. Stealing is taking from others without giving in return. Simple enough. The Electric Law Library defines it as the wrongful or willing taking of money or property belonging to someone else with intent to deprive the owner of its use or benefit, either temporarily or permanently. No particular type of movement or carrying away is required. It's a very long legal term. That's all very good, but the, ter- the, the definition that I would like to do today just actually comes from the dictionary and is pretty simple. To take the property of another without right or permission. Simple enough without right or permission. Now, there's many different layers to that. I consulted a friend of mine who is a lawyer while I was doing the sermon, and no matter what definition I came up with, he said there's always an exception. That's what lawyers do. Um, and he, but this one was pretty general and basic, so we're just going to go with that. Now, we see that we have this definition, to take the property of another without right or permission. We're going to draw this out further as we go along. Now that we have the definition of it, we need to look at the biblical categories of stealing. So let's examine the biblical categories of stealing. And there are several different categories or types of stealing. Now a lot of this, I mean, it comes in two different forms. We see there's what we call active stealing and passive stealing. Active stealing and passive stealing. Now we have different ones. I have the example up here. Here's some examples. Embezzlement, robbery, extortion, kidnapping. These all fall under active, meaning someone has gone out to do something to hurt or harm someone. Now, we also, though, uh, we have some, I think we have a verse here. You want to call that up for me? Leviticus 6, 1 through 7. Now, this is where we can see this being drawn out a little bit. Um, Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of, in, uh, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression, I want you to remember that, and we're going to come back to that later, restore, okay? Um, What he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall become, shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. So what he's doing is he's drawing out these different layers. And we see within that passage both active and passive stealing. Now I want to look at, look at passive stealing for a moment. Let's look at that one. This is, and it's also drawn out within that passage in Leviticus 6. Now I'd write that in your margins. 
Leviticus chapter 6, 1 through 7, because that really clarifies what the commandment is referring to. Now, passive stealing is negligence, which results in a loss to your neighbor, failure to return something lost to its owner, failure to give what belongs to another. Now, there's a lot to that. Um, we see a lot within this referring uh, to Deuteronomy actually 22, 1 through 4. Let's look at that. And this is more the example of ne- negligence. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help them lift up again. Now, we're talking about a lot of different things here. When you see a man's negligence, which results in a loss to his neighbor, what it means is to deprive the neighbor of his property, uh, and which thus requires restitution. For example, if a man had pasture land that had been grazed bare, and he therefore let his animal loose so that it graves on his neighbor's pasture, consuming it, the negligent man is guilty of passive stealing. You see what I'm doing? Right there, so you have active stealing, like robber weed. That's what we most often think about when I'm actively trying to steal from someone, and then it's just being almost negligent or lazy, where I let something happen and it and it hurts you, but it's costing you money in the process. That's a form of stealing. Okay, now some of you might be going, "Okay, I have no, I don't have a donkey, uh, I don't have a pasture or a farm, and I have no idea really how to apply this." What are you talking about? Well, let's look at the contemporary, uh, the, some of the contemporary forms of stealing. This is where I think we're really going to see where, how this is drawn out. First of all, we see that being an, uh, an unfaithful employer or employee is a form, can be uh, some of the different contemporary forms of stealing. Here's what I mean by that. If you are an employer that is continually not paying your workers what they deserve or you're keeping back part of the profits, that's a form of stealing. Or as an employee, I mean, you're stealing office supplies, you could be stealing time, you know, you're leaving, you're arriving late, you're leaving early, and yet you're pretending to be there that period of time. That is a form of stealing, okay? These are the different categories that we have involved that the Bible tries to give us a great big picture of. So being an unfaithful employee. Also, we have negligence or neglect, Now, I like Bob Deffenbaugh. He's a pastor of Community Bible Church down in Texas. He says this, Our negligence can can be costly to others. For example, littering and polluting is an act of negligence which makes life easy for us while others pay the price. We avoid the inconvenience of disposing of our trash or pollutants, but someone else has to pay for cleaning up our mess. Unless you think this is something that doesn't relate to you, I like this. I could tell something very personal is behind this. He says, How many of you turn your pet loose in the neighborhood to pollute someone else's yard so that you don't have to clean up the mess in your own yard? Okay, That's just an example of it, a lighthearted example of something that we can do by neglect or negligence. That's just a form of stealing. Now, here's here's another one for you. Wrongly getting a good deal. Now, not all good deals are bad. But there can be a wrongly getting a good deal. Like, for instance, go to a garage sale. You go garage sailing on a Saturday. 
Okay, you go in and you see that it's, there's a, a widow that's there. Her husband has died, and she's trying to sell to make ends meet. And you notice that she has something extremely valuable that she's willing to say, sell. Perhaps it's a 1964 and a half vintage Mustang. <laughs> okay? All right? It's a nice car. She goes, I'll sell it to you for $500. Everything's original on it, completely pure. It only has 50,000 miles. And she's like, I'll sell it for $800. That's all I think it's worth. You're like, um, <laughs> it's worth a lot more than that. You know, and you think you're getting a good deal. But really what you're doing is you're playing on her ignorance. You're taking advantage of her. We need to make sure that we're not, we're not taking advantage of someone by getting a good deal. Now, again, not all good deals are bad. But that can be a form of stealing. Now, here's another one. Participating in corporate or collective stealing. Some of you have seen the movie Aaron Brockovich. That is an example of a company that she speaks out against that is guilty of collective stealing. What it was is it was polluting the environment to the harm of the people around them. And they were getting, they were getting sick and they weren't letting them know about it. They weren't, they weren't trying to educate them or, or pay for their medical bills. That's a form of stealing and harm. And when we participate in groups that do that, then we are in serious trouble. I, I think, for instance, I, I remember reading about the Liberia rubber plant. I don't know if you've ever read about this, but it was, it's, it's owned by Firestone. And they started this, this plant in Liberia in 1926. It's a plantation in Liberia. Okay? And the interesting thing about it is, is that they kept the same contract that they've had since 1926. The same stipulations. And since we have modernized in a lot of different ways, they have not in this rubber plant. And these employees are expected to work like 21 hours a day at times. Okay? And not only that, there are child labor laws, but they don't enforce them. So these children are sometimes working for extreme periods amount of time. And the company knows about it. That is a form of collective or corporate stealing. They are taking advantage of this situation, what was going on in this culture. And they're totally using it for their own benefit. That's a horrible type of business. Here's another way of stealing. Abusing the system for one's own sinful advantage. We have this going on today in many different parts, uh, especially in terms of our welfare system. Now, again, some people do need it. I'm not saying that. But there are some that wrongly take advantage of it and use it as an excuse not to work. Now, again, not everybody does this. Some people are desperately in need, and they do need this. But there are others that just are lazy, and they abuse the system for their own sinful advantage. That is a form of stealing. Stealing. So we have corporate or collective stealing and abusing the system for one's own sinful advantage. Now, here's another way we can steal. Pirating another's intellectual property. Pirating and others intellectual property. Now, this is more prevalent today than it's ever been. Illegal downloading. When you download something and you use it without paying for it, that is stealing. Bootleg copies are stealing. They're like, well, I didn't make the copy. They gave it to me. You are participating in their act by doing so. That is stealing. The Bible is very clear. It's stealing. Well, they have all the money in the world. I don't care. It's still stealing. It is a form of stealing. When you're taking someone else's intellectual property and using it without paying for it, it's stealing. And that happens in, in music. It happens in movies today. It also happens among students 
and it's called plagiarism. When you take someone else's words and use them as your own, I've even seen pastors do it. They don't claim their own stuff. A lot of this sermon that I got today was studying different pastors. And I'm looking at some of their outlines and using some of those pieces in here. I'm crediting them for it. But I have a friend of mine who didn't do that. He pretended everything was his own, and he used every aspect, the same words that the other pastor did. And what happened? He got found out. He got fired. Because he stole. Pastors do this. Students do it. I'm not saying it's right. It's wrong. That guy was, it was I mean, he was, he, there was forgiveness. But how can you preach the word and take credit for it with someone else what they had done? That's a form of stealing. Plagiarism. When you're on a test it is, and you're using someone else's stuff, it is a form of stealing. Pirating someone else's intellectual property is a form of stealing. I, I recognized this the hard way when I was in school. I mean, even cheating on a test, that's stealing. When you're taking it from someone else. There was a period of time, I remember, before I was saved, um, that I, I struggled with this in high school because everybody else was doing it. It really was. Just everybody would go up, especially when I was in junior high, they would go up to the teacher, and he was, he was ready for retirement in more which way than one. And we were smart kids. I mean, pretty bad smart, actually. And what we would do is say, say can I have help with this question? And he would pull out this teacher's key, the answer book, and it had all the answers and it, we, it, right in front of us. <laughs> and what we would do is I'd get A, B, C, and D, and I'd go back and I'd tell my friends. <laughs> and then the next kid would come up and he'd go, I don't know this question. He'd get F, G, H, I, and J. And that was pretty bad, and I felt horrible about that, especially after I got saved. And I, I remember going into college, and I went to Moody Bottom Institute, and I had to have a take-home ethics test. Take-home ethics test. And I had all these answers but two. And I talked to someone else, and I looked at their answers, and I ended up using it. Okay? This is ethics test. Christian ethics test at a school for training pastors. So I ended up turning that in. And I, I, that was the end of the school year, and I went home that summer. And I, I could not, I didn't have any peace. I knew what I did was wrong. I knew what I did was wrong. I couldn't, I didn't have any peace in anything that I did. And I ended up talking to my mentor, and he says, you need to go back and make restitution, make it right. You need to go confess. And I was freaked out because that meant I could get kicked out of school. I mean, how bad is that? Get kicked out for cheating on an ethics test. <laughs> but I, I, I had to obey God rather than men. I mean, even some family members, they said, you do this, you're stupid. And I said, I have to obey God. I'll accept the consequences no matter what, what may be. So I went in and I talked to the teacher, and actually there was more than one involved in this. There was a couple things that I had done like that, and I went and confessed to them. And the worst part is, by the way, I still got a D on the test. I couldn't even cheat well, okay? Got a D on an ethics test that I cheated on. That's an idiot, okay? And, and what happened, though, is I told the teachers, and one teacher, she, I mean, there was consequences. I mean, she docked my grade, a full letter grade. The other teacher said, you know what? We appreciate your integrity, but you're willing to admit it. And he goes, you know what, I've had several students over the years come to me and say the same thing on ethics test. But not too many come back and make restitution and agree with it. But I learned a valuable lesson then. And I, I didn't do that any ever, ever again. I learned not to take someone else's stuff and do, work on my own merit because I didn't want to deal with God. Because God, when his spirit comes on you like that and you've done something wrong, he will convict you and he will poke you by his Holy Spirit's finger and not give you rest. And you should thank God for that because that means you're his child. But if you ignore that, then you are searing your conscience and hell awaits for you. Because you are, you are hardening yourself and you're saying that I'm going to choose my sin over the Savior. 
I'm gonna, I don't want to have the consequences, God, so I'm not going to deal with this issue. And what you're saying is, is that Jesus' death didn't cover that sin, but it did. It was meritorious enough that it covered that sin, but you have to agree with God about it and say that it is sin and name it what it is, not hide it. We have to accept the consequences come what may. Come what may. So don't pirate someone else's, another's intellectual property. Now this last, last category is probably the scariest. Failing to give God what is rightfully his. Did you know that you can rob God? You can steal from God. I want to show you this. There's, there's, the, there's the first way you can do it is by keeping back your tithe. Your tithe. Let me show you this passage. Malachi chapter 3. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? This is how you turn back to God. He's showing you right now. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. You're all thieves. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, some of you might say, and I preach this, I thought we're no longer under law. We're, the, we're, we're, we're not under the law. We're not in the nation of Israel. We're, we don't have the tithe any longer. You're right in that we're not under law. However, we are still to give and recognize that He is the Lord of everything that we have. And not only that, we're not under law, but we're under grace now. And where where law brought, grace abounds all the more. And did you know that what the tithe entailed? It wasn't 10% in the nation of Israel. It was actually more like 30%. 30%. Think about that. And we're saying, oh, I, I can't give this 10%. Isn't it great that God lets you keep 90%? And yet we whine and say, God, here, I, I can't do this. I can't, I can't afford to. Well, you can't afford not to. Here, you see that God's against you. Now, even though we're not under the tithe, we're under grace, but there's still some, some principles of giving. I don't have this up here, but I want you to, to write these down. This is how the Bible says that we are to give. First of all, we're to give willing and cheerful. Or Do I have that on here? I don't think I have that on here. Willing and cheerful. It's not in your notes anyway. Oh, I do have it on here. Each, of, each one of them must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. giver. Cheerfully! You know, I used to have this, this man that I knew, and I remember being in a grocery store with him, and he was in right in front of me, and he opened up my wallet, and he says, my, my wallet is made of onion leather. I said, onion leather? He goes, yeah, every time I open it, I cry. <laughs> you know? And some of us, when we give, we give very sadly. God says, give cheerfully. 
God loves a cheerful giver because you're giving it to God. You're entrusting it to God. You're showing your faith by what you give. Now, not only willingly and cheerfully, but it should be a regular pattern of life. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. It should be a regular, habitual pattern. It's just, that's part of it. There's the tithe, there's the tithe, there's the tithe. That's a good, that's a good beginner, the tithe. It should be a regular pattern of your life. This isn't within your notes. Also, it should be generous, actually, excuse me, proportionate to one's ability. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, as you are able, according to your ability. Not only that, but generously. In a severe test of affliction, the Macedonians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed. See, notice that extreme poverty overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave beyond their means. And not only generously, but lastly, sacrificially. Remember the, the poor widow? The poor widow with two small copper coins is commended by Jesus for putting into the offering everything she had, all she had to live on. Why? Because she entrusted it with God. If you trust it with God, God will take care of it and he'll take care of you. That's a sign of faith. Where's your faith? You can see a lot by a person's faith by how much they give. I'm not talking about the amount. I'm talking about in proportion to what it is that you have. Where's your faith? And if someone were to look at you and how you gave, honestly, I mean, I have no idea what you give. No idea. Clueless. Choose to do that. But if I were to know that, or someone else were to find out, what would we say about your faith in this room? If we were to broadcast that up there, Say what you made and how much you gave. What would we say about your faith? It's a question. More importantly, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. What does God say about it? I mean, if you're walking around and you've got all of these wonderful toys and you can't afford to give to God, then there's something out of whack in your life. Turn with me for a moment in your Bible. I want to turn with me to a very small, a small book that you probably don't read very often, Haggai. Sometimes called Haggai. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor, what's called the minor prophets. Very short book. Only a few chapters. I want you to look for a moment at, I don't have this on the screen here, but Haggai chapter 1. Now I want you to look at verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. If you can't, if you can't find it in time, just listen in. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now there, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
What happens when we forget God and forget to make Him a priority of our life? And this isn't just talking about money here. This is about making God the number one priority of our life. Your Christian walk is not a part of your life. Jesus is not one aspect of your life as if He's salad dressing on the side. He wants all of life. As the book of Colossians says, when Christ, who is your life, He is the definer of life. He is the heartbeat. He is the maker and sustainer of all that is, was, and ever will be. He is God. And yet we are so busy with our toys and our own little personal pursuits and pleasures that we haven't made God the first priority. See, this doesn't just involve the tithe. It involves another thing almost as valuable, if not more so, in our world today. It involves time. Time. Let's bring that up on the screen. We steal by failing to give God what is rightfully His, by our tithe and our time. Time. We are more busy than we've ever been filled with all of these good things and we're still trying to cram it in. But what amazes me is how many people that we've asked that say, can you do this? And they say, no, I don't have the time. Well, what are you doing? Because you're not serving the Lord. What are you giving your time for? A lot of these other extracurricular pursuits that somehow crowd out who God is in serving Him. We see here, you need to make God the priority. Build God's house. I'm not talking about a literal building of the temple as they were there, but building up the people of God, serving the people of God, sacrificially giving, spending time with the people of God, reaching out to those who are lost, serving. We have a lot of opportunities for volunteers to serve in a lot of different capacities. Whether it's the barbecue that we have coming on this next weekend for our community, or whether it's the ministries we have coming up this summer, we need people. But do you know what? If so many people have done is they've placed ministry at the altar of family rather than family at the altar of ministry. Now, yes, your family is to be a, a, an important pursuit and a priority. But God, what are we giving to God? What are we giving to Him? Are we giving Him the first fruits or are we giving Him the scraps of our life, the leftovers? What are we giving to God? It's not just our time, but it's our trust. Trust. Our trust. Now, what does that mean? How do I keep my trust from God? When God brings you into a relationship with Him, when you come to the, the knowledge of what He did for you, you're to give every aspect of your life over to Him. Do you know what many of us do, though? We keep all, most of it, and then we hold back part of ourselves. I, I saw this illustrated once, and I, I did this with my youth group. I, I had a, I think it was a $20 bill. And I reach out to the kids and I say, how many of you guys want this $20 bill? Everybody's like, woohoo, give me the 20, give me the 20. And then I handed it to the kid and then I pulled it back and the $20 ripped in two and he was like shocked, shocked. And I said, you know, that's what many of us do to God. We say, here, take it, I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to give it all the way over, I'm going to hold it back. And in areas of our trust, we don't trust God for our futures. Do you trust God if you're single for a mate? Do you trust God with your children? Do you trust God with giving your times and your talents? Do you, what areas do you not trust in God in? That's a way of robbing God. God wants it all. He wants it all. 
His death procured it all, and we're to give everything and surrender it at his feet. And not keep part, pack part of it. We give him all of our trust. Remember the story with Jesus, with Peter, and the last, the last Supper? We've talked about this several times. And Jesus gets ready to wash Peter's feet, and Peter says, Not my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I have every part of who you are, even the worst stuff, you have no part with me. He wants all of you. Have you given it all? Everything to him, have you laid it at his feet? He wants your tithe. He wants your time. He wants your trust. And there's still more. There's still more. Let's bring that one up. He wants your talent. You say, I'm not talented. Did you know that every single person, without exception, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift? God has gifted you specifically for a certain purpose to do something for his body. And that gift is not just for your good. If you look at the passage in 1 Corinthians, it says that he has gifted each one of us for the common good, meaning it's for the benefit of the body. It's for the benefit of the body. And our job, we are, as pastors, we're to collect believer and body. Actually, that's this new sermon series we're going to kick off with this fall. It's called I Church. Connect believers to the body. And show how you can serve. You've got talent. <laughs> like the TV show. Okay? The church has got talent. You've got talent. Are you using it? Are you using it to serve one another? That's what we're to use our gift for. Not, not keeping it to ourselves and hoarding it to ourselves or, or getting hurt and pulling back like, like a little child that says, you've hurt my feelings, I'm not going to play with you anymore. No. We're to give it to the body. Give it to the body. So we can rob God. But many of us, see, we don't trust God. We keep back for ourselves, whether it's tearing it away. I'm, I'm more reminded, I think, uh, being in driver's ed. Remember driver's ed? When I was in driver's ed, they had this really wrong car that had the brakes for the driver instructor. He could drive it. He could even take over the wheel. And I remember talking to him, and I said, do you trust me? And he's like, yeah, I trust you. And then I get up, and he starts braking. <laughs> I'm like, you don't trust me. <laughs> He starts taking it over, showing that he really didn't trust. That's how many of us are with God. We're like, God, you drive. By the way, I'm going to break right now. I don't like where you're going with this. Can you give me the wheel back now, please? We're to give it all over to God. All over to God. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, this doesn't probably seem like your normal sermon on stealing. But if you really think about it, stealing is a lot more about stewardship. Stewardship. And accepting what we have. So we have to see, though, that, and I don't know about you, but as I was comp- looking at this message, I was finding myself convicted. Because at first I thought when I was studying this, I'm not a big thief. I'm not stealing a lot of stuff. I'm not walking around like, the, you know, looking at someone's yard trying to steal it. I mean, stealing's everywhere today. I don't know if you've ever been stolen from. It's an awful feeling, isn't it? I remember since I lived here, I remember on Sunday night in, in my neighborhood, you put out your garbage, Right? I, I saw this car go by, and it kind of honk, and it stopped for a minute in front of my house. I'm like, what is going on? It was dark. And then I, I see him, uh, somebody shut the door, and they drive down the street, and I'm like, what was that all about? And I go out the next morning. They stole my recycling bin. Who steals someone's recycling bin? I mean, even in Aurora, we, we, we haven't had a garage sale a few weeks back. We had this, uh, uh, an old dishwasher that we had acquired, and we sold it to a woman, and we put it right by the side so she could come and pick it up. Someone came in 10 minutes and stole it while my wife was in the back of the house. I mean, Aurora's filled with thieves is what this place is. I mean, seriously. 
I mean, even in the city of Chicago, my first year of ministry, I remember being in my car, and, and I, I lived in Rogers Park, not in my car. I, I, I got up one morning, I went to my car, and there was my car wind, door hanging open, the windshield shattered. Someone had stolen my car stereo, which made me laugh because the stereo was broken, number one. Number two, it had a Fernando Ortega CD in it. I'm like, oh, let him come to Jesus. You know? It's an awful feeling to be stolen from. But we have to recognize that we're the ones who perpetuate a lot of this. We have to accept our culpability. Write that down. We have to accept our culpability. Take responsibility for the things we have stolen. Whether You could have stolen one of these many different things on this list. You could have been an unfaithful employer or an employee. We have to accept our responsibility and that we are culpable. It's not about pointing the finger at someone else, but accept our own, just like I had to when I was in college. I had to accept that and the consequences that came with it. And I was terrified. My knees were knocking, and that's a small thing. But if you're not small, I mean, if you're not faithful in the small things, you won't be faithful in the big things. You have to be faithful in the small things first. Small things. We have to accept our culpability. Now, what does that mean? It means we need to make a correction. We need to make a correction in our lives. Make a correction. If we're guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment, then we need to correct it. Now, Pastor Alan Carr relates this story. He says, often we are guilty of stealing in various, various areas of our lives. He says, things like taxes, keeping your word, honoring our debts, borrowing things and not returning them. <laughs> when we are obligated to do something, we should do it. When we don't, we have stolen. When we owe a debt or taxes, etc., then we also must pay that. Or again, we are guilty of stealing before God. One Sunday morning, Charles Finney, an evangelist of the 19th century, um, preached a message entitled, The Sin of Borrowing Things and Not Returning Them. I would like to have that as a sermon title. The Sin of Borrowing Things and Not Returning Them. He said, this is what he said from the pulpit, When I went to my tool shed yesterday with some men on hand to do some work, I found it practically empty. President, he started calling out people by names. He was, this is at a college, Overland College. He says, President Mahan had borrowed my plow and never sent it back. Professor Morgan had sent for my spade, and I haven't seen it since. Deacon Beecher has one of my, had borrowed one of my monkey wrenches for so long a time that the memory of man cannot recall how long it was borrowed. What does it mean? It means that there are some among the best of us uh, such a carelessness concerning our fundamental everyday obligations. The sermon, by the way, was extremely effective. The next morning before dawn, one neighbor trying to bring back a workhouse had to be rescued from Finney's dog. All the rest of the the morning, there was a steady stream of the neighbor's kids bringing back borrowed tools. They returned everything that were Finney's. Are we giving back our debts? The things that we borrowed? Are we doing that? Now, we need to make that correction. And here's what that looks like. First of all, it means making confession means making confession. You have to confess. You have to admit. You have to agree with God that what you did was wrong. The Bible's pretty clear on that. First John 1 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, actually, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that very conditional word, if. If we do it, God will forgive us. If we don't, he won't. You have to agree with God. That's what confession means, agreeing with God about what it is that you have done wrong. James 5.16, it means also confessing before God and confessing before man. James 5.16, 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why is that? Why do we need to confess? Because if we don't, that means we don't agree with what Jesus did on the cross. We are saying that his death is of no matter. By holding on to our sin and refusing to take the steps necessary to make a correction, we are choosing sin over the Savior. And you know what? God won't forgive us and he won't hear us when we call to him. Psalm 66, 18. Uh, and actually, let's look at Isaiah 59 first. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God will not hear you if you're holding on to your sin. I mean, we try to, try to, try to hide it and say, God, I'll give you this, but not this. We try to broker and barter with God. It doesn't work. It's fixed. We have to make confession. And not only that, let's call it the next part. Here's the second verse. Very simple. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I held on to it, if I don't make confession to the Lord, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I won't be forgiven. I like how David said it. David talked about being under such conviction that he said, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer until I confessed my sins to the Lord because God's placing his Holy Spirit upon him and won't let you, him rest until he confessed it. And that's what God does to us. He places his Spirit on us and starts placing us and our conscience gets magnified. And consider that an honor. That means God loves you. God loves you and he is chastising you to bring you to repentance because he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to stay in your sin. Now, not only though do you make confession, that's not enough. Remember what I said to you at the beginning within Leviticus, you had to make restitution or restoration. Restitution. Now we see this principle drawn out in the book of Matthew and also several different other places. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny, meaning you have to make restitution. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Remember that guy? Okay, he was a tax collector. What does he do when Jesus shows up at his house? You remember? He starts paying back to people, and he says, if I have squandered or stolen from anyone, I pay it back fourfold. I'm making restitution for what I've done. You have to make restitution. If you've stolen something, you need to make restitution. Now you say, well, what? I mean, there's so many things in my life. Whatever the Holy Spirit puts his finger on. I'm not saying you have to go back and think about everything that you've done since you were a child. But if the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it, then that's what you need to go back and need to make restitution for. See, there you go. Here's Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 11. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I'm making restitution. Making correction and making restitution. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I have a, my mentor told me this story one time, how this principle works out. Because remember, if we're cherishing sin in our heart and we refuse to do this, then, then we're, we're outside of the will of God, definitely. And he was telling about a friend of his. This is my mentor who was a student with him at Moody Bible Institute. This is in the 50s. And he, he was having a hard time in his prayer life. He says, I pray and I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the walls. 
And my mentor walked through these principles. He goes, if you, there's something, an area of your life that you're holding on to. He said, yeah, there's a sin that I'm holding on to. He said, what? He goes, well, I was an airplane mechanic in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, while I was working for them, they gave us a, a brand new set of tools worth $1,300. When I left that, I took the tools with me. And they're under my bed. And I know I stole something. And he goes, well, you need to go make restitution. He goes, when? He goes, right now. So this guy goes and gets on a plane, takes the tools with him, goes back to the job, job site, and goes to the foreman. And he says, you remember me? He says, yeah, you worked for me. And he said, you know, I'm a Christian. And I, I have to confess something. I stole these tools from you. He said, I know. He goes, uh, every employee does when they leave. He says, well, you have to take them back. He goes, I can't. Why? He goes, because I've already claimed the insurance on them. So they've already paid me back for them, so I can't have them. You can have them now. And he says, he says okay, thank you. And he goes, you're forgiven. And by the way, when you're done with school, call me, because I have a job for you. Because no one's ever come back and admitted it before, and I see that Christ is real in your life. I heard another story very similar to that when a young man had went back to make restitution to his boss, and he, he goes, he goes, I've been such a hypocrite. I've been pretending to be a follower of Christ when I stole this from you. He goes, well, I always knew you were a hypocrite. He goes, but now I'm beginning to wonder because now you're owning up to it and I want to know who Jesus is and more about him because I see he's real in your life. Powerful stories because it's a powerful truth because it's God's word. And God's word will always prove to be true. Now, I'm not saying there are not consequences for one's actions. There are but it's better to obey God than to worry about what other men may say. So make restitution. Now, it's interesting. Making confession and restitution are essential, but they don't cure the stains of sin. None of that does. I mean, we can never pay back to God. I think about the case Lunas versus the United States. Anybody ever heard of this? Lunas versus the United States. Fascinating case. It was in the late uh, 1980s or early 1990s that this court case came to the government um, and it was entitled, again, Lunas versus the United States. And the case, oddly enough, has to do with George Washington, of all people. Now, it's interesting. During the winter of 1777 to 1778, George Washington's Continental Army was camped at Valley Forge. The conditions were deplorable, and he was in desperate need of supplies. He asked the government, and there was not much the government could do, but a, a local Dutchman and staunch supporter of the war by the name of Jacob de Haven heard of Washington's plea and agreed to help by giving him a loan of $450,000. He gave 50000 in gold and $400,000 in supplies, but there were stipulations attached. He says the interest was to be paid annually, and the principal was to be repaid at the end of three years. But the loan never was. So, the Haven's descendants would periodically petition the government to be repaid, but with interest. And in 1991, think about that, $450,000 compounded at 6% interest for, at the time, 214 years. Anybody have that up in their head? That's $117 billion. The loan was never repaid, so his descendants are bringing this case to pay back. Now, here's the thing. The Haven's contribution really is invaluable. Because it helped bring about, preserve the Continental Army and then bring about the cause of freedom here in the United States. So in one essence, there's no price on what one could pay on that. You know, I think there's someone else that paid something for us that we could never pay back. And that was Jesus. You know what Jesus did? It's interesting enough. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took our place in a pretty profound way. Think about it. 
talking about stealing and, and robbing. Jesus, when he was brought before Pilate, Pilate brings up this one little th- an option to get Jesus out. You remember what it was? He was willing to trade a prisoner. He said he'll give Jesus. He would release, actually release someone on this day as a, as a token to the Jewish people. And the Jews don't want Jesus. Who do they take instead? Who was a what? See, a robber, insurrectionist, and a murderer. Each gospel offers a little bit different picture. John 18.40 said he was a, a robber. So Jesus is traded for a thief. And interesting enough, he goes to the Calvary and he is crucified between two what? Thieves. He becomes a thief, taking the price of it all upon himself. He stands in our place. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all thieves in one way or another, are we not? We are. But God knew that, and he chose to pay the price for us. And there's no way we can even pay back because it's so great. So unimaginable. We can never pay back what he's done for us. We shouldn't even try. Though we need to make restitution in these things of life, we can't ever pay God back for what he has done because he paid the price for our sins, enabling us, who are sinners, to have life with God. To have forgiveness, to be clen- have a cleansed conscience. There are some of you here today that are holding on to your, you feel that stain upon your soul and you can't shake it to the things that you have done. And it's not, it could be stealing, it could be murder, it could be adultery, it could be any of the Ten Commandments that have been broken. You can only find forgiveness and freedom through Jesus Christ and what it is that He has done. He offers us a cure. For all of the things that we've done. We need to embrace that cure. And I'm going to walk through these points rather quickly. Embrace the cure. How do we embrace the cure? First of all, it just comes through Jesus Christ himself. But then once we follow Christ, then we have to understand we have to live differently. And that means giving unconditionally. Giving unconditionally. Write this down to your margin. Matthew or Luke chapter 6, verse 30 through 35. Here's what we mean by giving unconditionally. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Also, it means that we need to be laboring faithfully. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the Bible, or that's what the Bible says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And understand that you're working for God, not for men. Labor faithfully. Also, act honorably. 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Fourthly, we are to deal justly with those whom we work with and for. We are to be just in all of our business practices. And then lastly, to love biblically. To love biblically. Because remember, Love covers a multitude of sins. And what does the, the, the first part, the first four of the Ten Commandments are summed up with? What? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. And it sums this up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love biblically and glorify God. 